So we are coming to the book of Exodus chapter 22. If you weren't with us last week, we started in on the book of Exodus, looking at some laws about slaves, and we looked at um, some laws about animals goring other people, and and what what are you supposed to do when that sort of thing happens. Uh, We looked at how uh, people are how people are to relate to each other in the realm of personal injury. We looked at some of these things together, and and we said, admittedly, that when you and I come to these passages, it can kind of be a little bit of a snoozer, because it's like, hey, like, like, I don't have an ox, and he's not going to gore anybody, so, like, we're, we're pretty much good. We can move on from that. However, we said that for the children of Israel, receiving these laws was something that they would be extremely excited about. They would be pumped. They would be so excited to receive these things, not because, uh, n- not because there was this great detail that was of, of such great interest to them, but because it showed them how they ought to relate to God, how they ought to know him. Now, we likened this to the situation that you and I all go through when we get on a plane, right? Everyone's been on a plane uh, recently, I'm sure, in, the, in your lifetime. When you get on a plane, you get there, and they go through the same uh, like safety pitch, the security, everything, like, okay, your life jacket's here, you know, and you're just all upset that uh, they've interrupted your movie uh, or you know, you, they've interrupted your show or music or whatever it is. They make you put away your, your iPad or your entertainment, whatever you've got, your book. Hey, put that down, get out. And realistically, nobody's paying attention. Realistically, like, that's just, that's just how it is. It's like, look, I've heard this a million times. We don't need to hear this. But the point of that very, uh, that very ritual that's put into practice is so that when you get yourself into trouble, you might have life. You might have access. When you, when you are faced with death, when there is trouble, trial, tribulation, that you know how to find life. In those instructions, in those very boring words, how to work a seatbelt, in case you've never used one, uh, that they give you the instructions for how to live. This is the same for the children of Israel as they are receiving these laws. They, although to us they might be a snoozer, this is something exciting for them because in these very laws is life. And so we come to the second set of them this morning. Uh, we are looking at more of the civil law. Now we said uh, in our introduction to the book of the covenant, this is kind of containing, there are three portions of law. There's first the moral law, which is the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue. And the moral law is still enacted today because it's rooted in God's character. Then there's the ceremonial law, which is how Israel relates to God in worship, how they ought to, uh, instructions for the tabernacle, what are the priests to wear, how are the sacrifices to go down, how many animals are you supposed to bring, how, uh, how is the blood in the sacrifice supposed to be uh, used. Now, those laws are, were put in place to ultimately, Scripture tells us, to point to Jesus to show us in each of those sacrifices, in each of those ceremonial laws, they point ultimately to Christ and his ultimate sacrifice that would make atonement for all of mankind. Now, Jesus has come. He has made that sacrifice at the cross. He has said, it is finished. And so the ceremonial law is gone away. It is done with. The book of Hebrews tells us this uh, in various spots throughout the book. We don't need to uh, 
observe the ceremonial law anymore because Jesus has made that final sacrifice. And then the last one is the civil law. And the civil law is instructions for Israel on how they ought to act as a nation and how they ought to relate to other nations. You know, if we start uh, our own nation, we need to come up with rules. What are the rules? Who's supposed to do what? What are the responsibilities? And so that is what we are coming to uh, this morning. We are looking at some of the civil laws. Now, these laws for the people would be a huge blessing because they taught God's people how to live in community. We need these laws to know how to relate to each other, to uh, the property that God has given us. And this, in our uh, text today, we're going to look at laws for settling disputes. And so we're going to look first kind of at this uh, section about matters of property. Uh, we will look a little bit later about some false worship and then wrapping it up um, about some social responsibility. Hopefully we can make it through this text, but we will see. Starting in verse 1, we look at the beginning of laws for stealing and restitution. Now, sorry, before we get to verse 1, I know, I'm keep, keep drawing this out. The civil law, I want to make this clear because we'll, we'll anchor a lot of these commands. The civil law is the law for Israel as a nation and how they ought to act, but the civil law is based on the moral law. It's rooted in, in God's character in the Ten Commandments. So you'll see that as we come through these things. Verse 1, stealing and restitution. If a man steals an ox or a sheep and kills it or sells it, he shall repay five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. So this here is a response to the Eighth Commandment, you shall not steal. Find this in uh, Exodus chapter 20. You shall not steal. So this is the response. Here's what happens. If a man does steal an ox or a sheep and he kills it or sells it, he shall repay five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. Now, animals in this time were a measure of uh, wealth. The, the livestock that you had uh, was the way that it was measured how wealthy you were. Now, more than that, they mentioned two animals, an ox and a sheep. Sheep were more of how you would measure the wealth, but the ox was a tool. It was what you would use to get your work done. The, and it was probably one of the most valuable tools that a, uh, an owner could have because it you, you would train this animal to walk in these specific lines and it would take some time to uh, get the ox to do what you wanted to do, to obey your commands. And so... If an ox is stolen, they're, they're taking from this person's livelihood, not just from their wealth, but they're taking from their ability to uh, farm their land. If an, if an ox was stolen or a sheep was stolen and it was slaughtered, there wasn't a way for it to be recovered, obviously. And so the thief would have to pay back four times or five times the animal, depending upon what animal it was. Now, we go on, we find in verse 2, if a thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for him. But if the sun has risen on him, there shall be blood guilt for him. He shall surely pay. If he has nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. So now we find uh, in verse 2 and 3 some instructions for what to deal with uh, for intruders in your house. Uh, this is looking at someone breaking in in the middle of the night. The thief is found breaking in, and he is, he's struck so that he dies. 
There should be no blood guilt for him. So here's, what, here's what's happening. In these ancient times, houses were built not from the same materials that we have today. A lot of times they were built from uh, like these kind of muddy brick sort of buildings. And so if you wanted to break into a place, you were going straight through that wall. There, there, there weren't like these sweet windows that you could just kind of sneak through. And uh, it was just, if you're breaking in, you're going straight through the wall like the Kool-Aid man. Like that's just what's happening in the middle of the night. Now, if somebody tried to do this in the middle of the night, the homeowner had the right to defend his property. Now, why is this the case? They say at night. Well, in those times, they didn't have electricity. And if you're sleeping, you're not going to get up and be like, let me, let me like get my candle out or light the fire real quick. It's like, you don't know the intention of the person breaking into your house. And so your thought is, I don't know if this person's just coming here to steal things or if this person's coming here to kill. If this person is coming to murder a member of a family, there's somebody upset with me. We don't, we don't really know this person's intention. And so they had the opportunity to defend themselves. And in the process of defending themselves, if this person was killed, then there was no blood guilt upon them. Now, during daylight, the rules are different. If someone broke in, he could not be killed without consequences. Now, the thought behind that is this. The homeowner would be able to see what the intentions of the person were. Are they rolling in here with, like, a knife, a sword? Or is this just, like, somebody coming in looking to see what's available and they can just take real quickly and get out? The other aspect of this is at night, you can see the face of the person. And so they could go to the authorities and say, like, oh, it's this guy from this family in this camp. He's right here. They could report him. At night, you wouldn't know, under the cover of darkness, you would not know who the intruder was. Now, in verse 4, we flip back over to animals. If the stolen beast is found alive in his possession, whether it is an ox or a donkey or a sheep, he shall pay double. So now, if this thief comes in, he steals, but if the stolen animal is found alive, then the thief must pay back double. So there is less restitution to be made here, only two times. Now, the reason is because if the animal was still alive, the owner didn't have to go out and find a replacement. He got his animal back, but the thief still had to make restitution. He had to give back what he had stolen plus extra. Now, we're told that through this uh, command to not steal, if someone did enter into uh, this life and they tried to steal things, if the thief was not able to pay back, if they didn't have four times or five times the animal or two times if the animal was returned, if they did not have this, then they were sold into slavery to pay off their debt. Two times, four times, five times the amount, depending upon what it was. Now, as we said last week when we looked at slavery, this wasn't the same type of uh, slavery that we find in American history, but we saw the laws for slavery last year. Someone could only be a slave for six years, and in the seventh year, they had to be released. Likewise, slave owners were told to not mistreat their slaves. And if a slave owner had knocked out a, uh, had caused a serious injury to the slave, the slave immediately went free. This was God's law. So there were things put in place here. This is essentially someone going into uh, debt and they're working off their debt is basically what's happening here. They would, uh, all of their, their work, they would work for the person that they were owing uh, this debt to. And over time, that the, 
the uh, person who was holding the debt over them would provide housing, would provide food for them, but yet they would still have to work to pay off this debt. Now, to, to give you a little bit of context about this, to understand like how intense this would be, we, we don't work with oxen today because, you know, obviously, we don't, I know, actually, I know some people who have fields. They might have oxen. I don't really know, but most of us don't have oxen, right? However, we all have a car that we take to work. If you uh, work in a construction job, you probably have some type of truck that you use to transport your tools, something that you use on the job. So I just kind of went and did a little uh, experiment to kind of see, like, what is the kind of average cheap truck for, like, a worker? Works out that a base model work truck is about $26,000, which is not that much money. It's like, okay, like, that's reasonable amount for no bells and whistles. Now, if you had stolen someone's work truck and you had crashed it and it was just gone completely, uh, then, well, let's say, let's say they recovered it. Not even that. You recovered it and you had to replace two trucks. Uh, two times the amount. $52,000 is what you're, what you're owing there. If you crashed it and, it and it's completely gone or you sold it and you can't recover it, then you're in the hole for $104,000 or $130,000. These are your two options. So obviously you're going into, going into slavery to work that off because you probably don't have $130,000 to pull out of your pocket to be like, boom, here you go. Now, what this points out for us, this is a warning for thieves, but f- this is a little bit of irony in God's law it, through this sense of justice that he brings about. Someone who was not trusting in God to provide for them, by stealing, they would end up becoming enslaved and impoverished. Rather than having financial gain, they would end up going into worse, uh, a worse of a financial situation than they had previously been in. Now, the other thing about this law that God gives, it's important for us to note, is that it was rooted in protecting life. These commands for guarding against stealing were rooted in protecting life. Not the life of the owner of these goods, but the life of the thief. Other ancient laws generally put thieves to death. In uh, Hammurabi's code, uh, they have, uh, one, one of the clauses here says, if a Senor made a breach in a house, they shall put him to death in front of that breach and wall him in. If he committed robbery and has been caught, then he shall be put to death. So God's law is less, less harsh than the other laws of the pagan communities surrounding. Because those people were able to, God's people were able to have their property protected without destroying life. Now, the other thing with this is God's law shows no partiality. Uh, In other ancient cultures, the penalty for the theft was uh, specifically connected to the social status of the victim. So there would be discrimination. If you stole from a really rich person, then the punishment was much greater. But if you stole from somebody who was poor, then it wasn't really that big of a deal. So God's law offers equal protection both to the rich and to the poor. 
He puts these things in place so that it might be fair. Now, this is rooted in God's character because God is not a God who takes. He gives. He's generous. He does not steal. He does not take from his people, but he has given us his own son generously. So God's people should not be a people who take, but rather are willing to offer up. We'll see more of that in a little bit. Now, verse 5, we look at negligence and restitution. We'll move, we'll move more quickly. Stick with me here. If a man causes a field or vineyard to be grazed over or lets his beast loose and it feeds in another man's field, he shall make restitution from the beast in his own field and in his own vineyard. So if an animal, you got an animal, it wanders into your neighbor's yard and it starts eating all their food, then you need to like let your neighbor's animal come into your yard and eat the same amount of food. It's basically what's happening here. Now, verse 6, if a fire breaks out and catches thorns so that the stacked grain or the standing grain or the field is consumed, he who started the fire shall make full restitution. Now, so this is the instance of preparing uh, the fields in a controlled burn. You don't want something to catch on fire accidentally. And so you're out there burning portions of your field to make sure that in the event of a fire, it doesn't just destroy everything. If you are in charge of starting this fire and there's this accident and all of a sudden a fire that starts in your field jumps the line and it goes over into your neighbor's field and starts destroying all of their wheat, starts just thrashing everything, it's your responsibility to make restitution to your neighbor. It's your responsibility to pay for their loss. Now, these situations here are specifically accidents. These things are not done on purpose. They are not done with malicious intent, but these things are specifically accidents. And so the biblical principle that is being put in place here is that God's people take responsibility for their actions, even accidental ones. Even things that's like, oh, I didn't mean for that to happen. That wasn't my intention. You still take responsibility for your actions. Now, verse Seven, we look at safekeeping. If a man gives to his neighbor money or goods to keep safe, and it is stolen from the man's house, then if the thief is found, he shall pay double. If the thief is not found, the owner of the house shall come near to God to show whether or not he has put his hand to his neighbor's property. For every breach of trust, whether it is for an ox or for a donkey, for a sheep, for a cloak, for any kind of lost thing of one which says, this is it, the case of both parties shall come before God. The one whom God condemns shall pay double to his neighbor. So there's this practice called safekeeping. Like, what's that about? Uh, this was su super common in the ancient world. Think about this. There were no banks, so you couldn't like go and put your stuff in a safety deposit box. If you were going to go visit family, relatives, like, and you're going to take like this, you know, multiple day trek just to get there and then you're not going to stay there for like just a day you're going to be gone for a while you need to entrust your things to somebody else and so oftentimes this would be the case they would entrust their goods to a neighbor um, and they would leave them with somebody that you trusted but then the situation is well what happens if something happens to your things when you're gone you come back and it's like where's all my stuff now the qualification here, or, or not the qualification, the responsibility is put on the person responsible for safekeeping. When someone entrusts something to you for safekeeping, the one who is entrusted is ultimately responsible. And so in the case of theft, 
If a thief is caught, it's like, oh, we, we figured out who it was. He's going to pay back double. Now, if the thief isn't caught, the way that this law works, number one suspect becomes the person who is in charge of keeping your goods for you. They're immediately the first suspect after, like, we didn't find a thief. Okay, it's this guy. Inside job. And then, if that's the case, then they go to the judge. We're not really told the process of how this judging works out, but it's up to the judge to determine guilt or innocence, and then whoever's guilty has to pay back double. Now, if someone can prove that they're in uh, possession of something that doesn't belong to them, then that person can also, if the owner's like, oh, I figured out who it was, I found it, they can produce it. If you had something that was stolen, you were considered guilty. So it wasn't possession is nine-tenths of the law. It's like if you possess it and it wasn't yours, like you're the person who stole it. So you didn't want to be holding on to something that didn't belong to you. You were considered to be guilty. Verse 10. If a man gives a neighbor, gives to his neighbor a donkey or an ox or a sheep or any beast to keep safe, and it dies or is injured or is driven away without anyone seeing it, an oath by the Lord shall be between them both to see whether or not he put his hand to his neighbor's property. The owner shall accept the oath and he shall not make restitution. But if it is stolen from him, he shall make restitution to its owner. So animals here are a little bit of a different angle. There's always a potential for injury or death when you go to an animal. It's basically like, hey, like if you loaned your neighbor the bobcat tractor and he was trying to, like he created a ramp and he was trying to like launch this thing or like He's doing some foolish things with the bobcat tractor, then, you know, there's, there's some problems. You give, like, guys something big and powerful, you know they're going to try to do something crazy with it. And so, here, the way that this law works, the first uh, thing to happen in this situation, if, if there's an animal that dies, it's injured, it goes away without anyone seeing it, uh, the person entrusted was immediately responsible. Now, if it's like, oh, I didn't see it, then they take an oath before the Lord. We don't know the details of the ceremony. They're not given here. If the person is innocent, then there's no restitution that's required. But if an animal is stolen from the person entrusted to it while it's under his care, then he has to make restitution. He should have taken care of it better. He should have made sure that he is being more aware of the property that he's entrusted with. It's up to him to make restitution. Now, verse 13, if it is torn by beasts, let him bring evidence. He shall not make restitution for what has been torn. So this means if the person who's entrusted with it, he finds out, oh, we found the animal. It got ripped to shreds by a wild animal. And you can produce it and show like, oh, okay, uh, here's clearly like a bear ate this thing. Then it's like, okay, I can't really, like, I'm not going to fight off a bear. Sorry about that then you're free. You don't have to make another, you don't have to get another ox for this guy. <clears throat> now, verse 14, if a man borrows anything of his neighbor and it is injured or dies, the owner not being with it, he shall make full restitution. If the owner was with it, he shall not make restitution. If it was hired, it came for its hiring fee. So if you borrow an animal and it's injured or dies, and the owner is not there, then you have to replace the animal. However, if the animal dies or is injured while the owner is present there, he's a witness, he's overseeing your use of this animal, then there's no restitution to be made. 
the owner can see clearly like, oh, you didn't try to do anything dumb with this. You're not trying to make him work harder than he should. Uh, you're, not, you're not trying to use this animal unwisely. And so there would be no restitution made. Now, the third category is if an animal is rented, if you rent an animal from your neighbor, you pay for it, it's the owner's responsibility to put in the rental fee the cost of replacing the animal should something happen to it. So if you paid money for it and the animal dies or it's injured, you're off the hook. You, got, you bought like the insurance with it when you rented it. It's basically what's happening here. All right. Now we make kind of a sort of interesting transition here to this next section talking about premarital sex, like right after animals fighting each other or after uh, animals getting injured, we make this strange sort of turn. And not in the sense that uh, it, it seems a little bit out of place because it's a different topic, but what this is talking about is still restitution. It's still talking about making something right. You'll see what I mean in a second here. Verse 16. If a man seduces a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall give her the bride price, give the bride price for her and make her his wife. If her father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall not pay money equal to the bride price for virgins. So here's, here's the deal that's, that's happening here. This is speaking about premarital sex. This is not um, speaking about Rape. This is not speaking about something that uh, is not consensual. This is clearly through the words here. If a man seduces a virgin, this is a woman receptive to a man's advances here, and they give in to this, then the rules that God puts in his law is that he shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. Now, the way that this is structured is not to say that she is property, but that she is worth something. So that's what's going down here. When, he's, when it says uh, there's a bride price, this law was for her protection. The bride price was to be, it, it, commentators are a little bit up in the air about how exactly that would be paid out, but it would either be paid to the family of this woman or it would be paid to the woman directly. So that way, if this man, if he wasn't going to follow through and he wasn't going to marry her, she would have something to live off of. She would have enough money, enough provision to make a life for herself. They would pay this huge sum to her, taking care of her. Uh, so we're not really sure exact, the exact application of this. Now, this law was also put in place not only to provide for her, but also to make sure that God's uh, people were faithful people. Throughout history, there have always been men around who would like to have the pleasures of sex without the responsibility of marriage. And so this says, if you're going to get yourself into that situation, you found a wife. If there was this, if you, if there was this consensual uh, relationship happening, then it's your duty, your obligation to marry this woman, to care for her, to pay this bride price. Now, this made it so that in Israel, God's people couldn't just sleep around. This law was on the book so that people would know that there had to be a commitment, a covenant made. Now, 
The father, verse 17 tells us, he had the ability to refuse the marriage. If he was like, this is sketchy, like this dude is not, he's not, he's bad news, like we're not getting into this situation. He had the ability to act in the best interest of his daughter, make sure she was taken care of. Now, these laws that we just looked at, this law we looked quickly at about seduction are followed by three crimes that demand the death penalty. And each of these crimes is rooted in false worship. First one, verse 18, you shall not permit a sorceress to live. It's like real short, not a lot of description. You shall not permit a sorceress to live. So a sorceress was a woman who tried to gain spiritual power through demonic influence. This person would claim to have uh, supernatural insight, supernatural knowledge, power that would be used to influence these gods, these demons, to cast these spells in a sense. And throughout, uh, in, in these ancient times, sorcerers would uh, try to kind of tell their, the, the future, predict fortunes, get into contact with those who were dead. They would practice these um, different levels of witchcraft. Now, this person was a direct, d- directly in opposition, in open rebellion to God. Because this is a, an attempt to get around God, to find out the future, to get into contact with those who God has already uh, taken from the earth. This is circumventing God's will, his sovereignty over all life. It's tapping into satanic powers. Now, this uh, law is put into place calling sorcery as a sin because God wants to enter into a relationship of trust with his people where he speaks to them plainly at Mount Sinai. He communicates with them directly. He has given a way for his people to relate to him, but this is a way that people are trying to manipulate their situation. They're manipulating their life, what they desire, and trying to put themselves in a position uh, to submit to these demonic forces. So this is the outcome. They, there could not be this in Israel's history. And so, it, sadly, this, this happens throughout. They serve other gods. It gets all crazy. Uh, it's bad news. But that's why there's such a, a harsh um, penalty for this. There, there's two more that we follow. Verse 19, whoever lies with an animal shall be put to death. So this, I'm going to uh, read to you from a commentator, John McKay. He describes this more succinctly than I ever could. He says this, In Scripture, there is, this is condemned as perversion because it is a flagrant disregard of the structure and order that God has endowed on creation, crossing or blurring the divine boundary between human and the animal in such an unholy and unnatural manner constitutes an act of rebellion. So the commentator says that the reason that this is so heinous is because it is uh, directly rejecting God's created order. He made uh, man 
and he made animals, and he made each to be with their kind. Now, this was also not just about uh, a sexual relationship with an animal. It was also about worship. When you look at this in the context of Israel's history, they were surrounded by uh, the Canaanite nation. They just came out of Egypt, which had animal gods. They just came out of these, uh, they're, they're surrounded by, by nations that are involved with animals at some degree. And so these other cultures, specifically the Canaanites, they uh, would portray one of their gods, Baal, who we'll meet as we go throughout, uh, engaging in a sexual relationship with a cow, and they would up, uh, incorporate these things into their uh, ritual worship. And so they thought that they could unite with these animal gods through a physical union. And so this is a, an attempt uh, to be, it's false worship, it's, it's an attempt to be connected to God in a way that God does not relate to his people. Now verse 20, whoever sacrifices to any God other than the Lord alone shall be devoted to destruction. So this is simply idolatry, the offering of sacrifice to any uh, pagan God. And this would be seen as an open act of rebellion. And so this person would be destroyed. Their property would be destroyed. Now, God's law here is put in place to reveal his character. He's looking to sanctify his people, to have them be set apart from the other nations. He does this uh, through the way that he has them relate to each other in making restitution, how he has them deal with negligence, he does this in the way that their worship should be structured specifically, and it should not be uh, this form of false worship. But now we just look quickly at social responsibility. And this reveals God's character because he cares deeply for how his people relate to the other nations. And he cares deeply for, uh, we'll look at four categories here, the sojourner, the poor, the widow, the orphan. Stick with me, we're almost done. These laws that we find, starting in verse 21, are designed to protect the disadvantaged and the defenseless. And these are people are usually the weakest members of society, and they usually get treated the worst. And so here we find in verse 21, you shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. This is sojourner, same thing as a foreigner, immigrant, this is somebody who is coming into the land. Now, foreigners, people who are not native to the land that they are living in, are always at a disadvantage because they don't know the language. They don't know the rules. They don't have connections. They don't know where to, to find things. You're walking around a bit blind. Now, God's people are specifically told, you are not to take advantage of outsiders. They are not a opportunity. You're not to prey on them. Now, why are they told this? Well, God appeals to their own experience. He tells them, you yourself were sojourners in the land of Egypt. The Israelites, they knew what it was like to be strangers in another land. They knew what it was like to suffer oppression, mistreatment in Egypt. He says, look, just because you're free now, from Egypt doesn't mean that you get to do what they did to you. That law is written into their law about slaves. It's written into their law about uh, welcoming strangers here. 
And so the people of God, they had a responsibility to welcome strangers, to love them, to be like God who rescued them, who saved them. Now, this is con in contrast to the other nations because the ancient cultures like Egypt were able to do whatever they felt uh, to foreigners. Now, verse 22, you shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. Now, widows and orphans are obviously at a disadvantage uh, in society. They don't have anyone to care for them. They don't have husbands. They don't have fathers. They have no provider. They're on their own. They're struggling greatly. And so there's nobody to care for them, to protect them from injustice, except God. And so God calls his people to care for widows and orphans. We find this carried out still into the New Testament. Same laws continue there. This is rooted in God's care for the widow, for the orphan. Now we find some, some stiff consequences in 23. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. So why is this one just so intense? Like all of a sudden it's like, if you're not going to do the job, like I'm going to like burn, my wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword and your wife shall become widows and your children fatherless. Like what just happened? Why is there just such intensity in this language? Because it's clear that if God's people fail to keep this law, they're going to be severely punished. Now, this is so intense because it's rooted in God's character. His people were to represent him to the surrounding nations. And so if the reputation got around that Israel, they don't even care for their own widows and orphans. It would be said that the God of Israel doesn't care for widows and orphans. It's the, and this is the whole trajectory of Scripture. When we look at the New Testament language, it says that you and I are orphans. We are lost. We are on our own. We are weak, blind, poor, naked. But yet God enters in as a good, good father, as we sang this morning, and adopts us and makes us his sons and daughters. He brings us into his family. He protects us. He provides for us. You see, what's happening here is not just a small little, uh, a, a small law that's only to affect a couple people, because there aren't very many widows and orphans, but the fact of the matter is, is that we've all been widows or orphans at some point, and God has rescued us. And so he's putting into his plan a faithful witness for the church so that the surrounding nations can see that God is faithful to his people, and he takes care of widows and orphans. Listen to this description in, in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 17. It, it continues on uh, describing just this. He said, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. What he says is this is rooted in God's character, and if you're not going to be like God, you're going to be misrepresenting him to the people, to the surrounding nations. 
Now, as Christians in America, we have a huge opportunity to reach the world by loving the nations. A massive opportunity. And realistically, we're also kind of thinking like, look, I ain't, I'm super busy. I'm in school. Got a massive career. Got stuff happening. Like, there's, I don't know how that's going to go down. The way that America works and the way that God and his sovereignty works and the way that God putting all of us in this room, in this city, in this region, in this time works is he's got it all handled. We don't need to worry about this. Like, hey, look, you might not be able to hop on a plane and go make some things happen in another nation, but God has brought the nations to us. One of my favorite things about Berkeley is like we have so many cultures here. You want to eat any type of food? You can find that somewhere around here. It's epic. We have so many different people of so many different backgrounds. We get to see the nations come to us. It's so amazing. And God has brought these people to us, both legally and illegally. That's a whole other conversation, and that's United States legally, and that's not something we're talking about this morning. What we're talking about is that God has allowed people to come to where Christians are. And we have an opportunity to reach out to them. Because every year people immigrate to the U.S., in Berkeley every year, we have like a massive amount of foreign exchange students come in. We get to enjoy them. Some of them we've had in our body. Uh, you know, we, we've got, uh, we, we've had Yeni here. We've had uh, Johannes and Sumin. We, uh, you know, we've had, we've had plenty of people who have come in from the outside. And we've got to enjoy them, to grow in them. Oakland, just right here, is a refugee city from, for people from Burma. There's an opportunity there. They are bringing in people, like tons and tons of people, and trying to find spots for them. Look, you don't have to go far. You just need to open your eyes to see how God would use you to connect with people who are from international backgrounds. They're, they're all around here. And it doesn't mean you have to like, have like, this crazy evangelistic uh, you know, gift or anything like that. Just practical help. Friendly, smile, helping people with local customs, showing them, you know, here's where the bus stop is, giving, you know, just the most bare bones things are ways that we can show the love of Christ. We're called to be like God who ministers to people from other nations. His final kingdom that we see in the book of Revelation is comprised of all the nations. So I'm cool with connecting with all the nations now because they're all of our brothers and sisters and we're going to end up having a sweet party together in heaven, enjoying Jesus together. I'm happy to meet um, as many people from those nations as possible. Verse 25, <clears throat> if you lend money to any people, any of my people with you, who is poor, you shall not be like a money lender to him, and you shall not extract interest uh, from him. So here the law forbids taking advantage of somebody else's uh, misfortune. If the Israelites lent money to the poor, they were not allowed to charge interest. No interest. God never allows his people to make money off the poor. He wants to protect his people from debt. He doesn't want them to be uh, enslaved to debt. Jesus continues this, and he even ups the ante a bit more. 
which is a little bit scandalous, uh, you know, because everyone's like, look, like I at least I want to like get make some money. Like I'm losing out on an opportunity to make money. But that's like our little pharisaical heart that's hidden in there, and we're like trying to protect what's ours. Don't worry, Jesus deals with that. The rest of this text deals with it. Here's what it says. Luke chapter 6, verse 34. Jesus speaking. He tells, uh, he, he says this. If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit to that is you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. He's like, look, like, you're not special if you think, like, oh, I didn't charge interest. Like, even, even people who, are, who don't know God, who don't enjoy Jesus, even they do the same thing. Jesus says, verse 35, but love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. You see what Jesus does there? He says, look, you're going you're gonna to give some money and you think you're like, oh, you're a big deal because you didn't charge interest. He's like, what if you really want to be like God, is you should give and not expect anything in return. You should just make it a gift, not a loan. You're like, oh, you need some money? Here, boom. Now, this isn't, uh, this also calls for proper stewardship. So, like, you know, if you're not to put yourself into debt. If you don't have money to lend, don't lend money. Uh, but if, you, if God has given you that opportunity and you can steward over it wisely and you can bless somebody, praise the Lord. It's an opportunity uh, for you to use those things for God's glory. Now, look at what he says here. I want you to see this because this is super important. If you do this, if you love your enemies and do good and lend, expect nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and evil. You see what he's saying here? The people that you're, that you're going to lend this money to or that you're going to end up gifting it to, they're probably not going to be as grateful as you want them to be. You probably want them to be like, oh my gosh, like you were the greatest, you're so awesome. You, you want them to be indebted to you in some way in their relationship. They're probably not going to satisfy you with their gratefulness. They're not going to be as thankful as you wanted them to be. And it's probably going to make you upset. And he even goes as much to say like some of these people might even be evil. But what he says is be merciful even as your father is merciful. It's like, look, like do it. But it's not for what you're going to get back. It's so that you can be like Christ. Because Christ, or God has given us his own son in Christ, and we were definitely not grateful. We, he's like, here's Jesus to save you, and we killed him. Like, we don't really have a sweet track record going there. So the way that we ought to relate to others is to be like God, not expecting things in return. Stick with me. We're almost done. Verse 26. If you take your neighbor's cloak and pledge and you return it to him before sun, the sun goes down. Uh, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down. Excuse me. For that is his only covering and it is his cloak for his body. And what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear him for I am compassionate. So the situation here is someone gets a loan and as collateral, they would give them this thick outer garment that people would have in this time. You could sleep in this outer garment provided warmth and so this cloak would be used here. Now, the lender was not to keep the cloak overnight. It's like, look, you got your bed back at night. It's basically what's happening here. God takes care to make sure that even though there might be collateral on that, that all of his people are protected, cared for, and warm. You had to give back the cloak at the end of the day so that way they were, they were uh, taken care of. If you were in debt, you weren't out 
freezing to death, being reminded, like, if I didn't owe this money, I would be warm right now. Verse 28, you shall not revile God nor curse a ruler of your people. Uh, it might say in your Bible, blaspheme instead of revive, revile, uh, but revile is a good, um, I guess both of them are good words. But here, what it, what it means here is not that you curse God or that you say something bad against him, but that you take him lightly. You don't really give him the full weight of his glory. You're acknowledging you're failing to acknowledge his majesty. This is rooted in the third commandment. We talked about what it means to take the Lord's name in vain. It's not just to say, you know, like God or Jesus Christ in a, uh, a way that would be used as not honoring God's name. Although you shouldn't do that. That's part of the third commandment. That's the very lowest level of it. What it means is you sh you're failing to live in accordance with his character. You claim to know him, but you're not living according to his character. And here, it's saying, you're taking him lightly. You're just doing your own thing. You shall not revile God, nor curse a ruler of your people. This is rooted in the fifth commandment. We saw that, honor your mother and father, uh, is the fifth commandment. And we saw that it wasn't just only about honoring your mother and father, but about that was the, the base social structure in society. And if you were honoring your mother and father, then you would be... Uh, taught rightly to respect the authority that God has put over you. And so this is saying that we should not curse a, a ruler of your people, that you should respect authority. These two things are mentioned together, uh, if you notice there. So it's, it's interesting that, God's, that, that this law is put into place to say, you shall not revile God, nor curse a ruler of your people. Like what's happening there? Uh, third commandment and fifth commandment, all of a sudden they're kind of married together here. They're connected. Every leader, every representative uh, is put into place and should be given our respect. They're put into place by God. Romans 13, chapter 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed and those who resist will incur judgment. And so, so today, the way that this law works out is it applies both to our civil in our land, our civil authorities, and our spiritual authorities. Uh, pastors, elders of the church, you should respect the authorities that God has put into place. Now, here's the thing. We need to hear this. The reason that we are to respect our authorities, to honor them, is not because they're right. Not at all, because a lot of times it's like they are off their rockers, like I don't, I'm not really going to get behind the things that this person's saying. But it's because they've been given to us by God. He is the one who has instituted them. He has put those people in place. And so we give the respect to them that God tells us we should. Now, the Apostle Paul, he did this, uh, he, he put this very thing into practice uh, and he ended up having to correct himself in uh, Acts chapter 23. He's there uh, kind of on the, in this situation where he's on trial, and uh, Ananias, he tells the people, Paul is being held like in this court, and Ananias tells, uh, not Ananias, not good Ananias, bad, uh, high priest Ananias. He tells the people who are near him, like, hey, like, hit Paul, like, strike him uh, on the mouth. And so he, they do, 
And then in verse, uh, Acts 23, Acts 23, verse 3, Paul says, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet, contrary to the law, you order me to be struck. So he's saying, like, you, did, you just did something illegal. And you're acting in opposition to God's law. And then those who stood by, verse 4, said, Would you revile God's high priest? Verse 5, and Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. So Paul cites this. He's like, he just got hit in the face. And he said, this dude's acting illegally. So it's basically like, this guy lost all credibility. And he's opposing Jesus. So basically, like, he's three strikes, you're out. But Paul still says, oh, sorry. Like, I didn't, I didn't know that he was like the high priest. I didn't, I didn't know that was the situation that I was in. And he cites the exact law. So even Paul here, he acts in obedience to this, even when he is being just straight up beaten. Verse 29, you shall not delay to offer from the fullness of your harvest and the outflow of your presses. The firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. You shall do the same with your oxen and with your sheep. Seven days it shall be with its mother, and on the eighth day you shall give it to me. So this tells us that we owe God our gifts and our tithes. The Israelites had to bring God uh, the first and the best of their grain, of their grapes, of their, uh, their oxen, their sheep. And also God lays claim over the firstborn of every household. We saw this in Exodus chapter 13, that every firstborn in son in Israel was to be consecrated to God uh, with an animal sacrifice. And this was the way that was showing that uh, the whole family belonged to God. The animals belonged to everything belonged to God. He is our uh, rightful owner. He's the one who is Lord over our lives. All the property that we have is really his. And so this is uh, the beginning of the basis for the way that we should give back to God. In, in the New Testament, this works out in the way of uh, New Testament giving, tithing. We should give to him the first, the best, what he has given to us, recognizing that he has provided for us. Verse 31, you shall be consecrated to me. You shall not eat, therefore you shall not eat any flesh that is torn by beasts in the field. No, you shall throw it to the dogs. So here's the rule, no roadkill. That's basically it, no roadkill. So you find an animal in the middle of the road, smashed, like you can't eat that. That's basically the rule. Why not? It's not a matter of public health. It's not a matter of, like, that's just super disgusting. Uh, it's a matter of ritual purity. This animal is considered unclean. It wasn't prepared right. It might not be the right kind of animal. But what this is for Israel, it's a symbol of God's plan for the whole nation to be set apart, to be holy. And so uh, they, they say, you have to be set apart. You can't just partake of anything. Now, these laws that we look at in chapter 22 all remind us of the gospel. They all remind us of God's great work in our lives. He sent his son to be our savior because we ourselves were strangers. We were widows, orphans. We were alienated outside the family of God. We were debtors enslaved with a debt that we could not pay. But God in Christ loved us. He sent Jesus to become a man. Guess what? Wasn't his problem. And so like 
God's people called to take responsibility for things that weren't their, their fault. It's like, hey, look, like, I didn't, I didn't thrash that field. God comes in to become a man to take care of a problem that wasn't his. He steps in to live a life, a perfect life in our place so that we, we might have new life in him and relate to him. He's paid the debt through his work upon the cross. And so we're no longer orphans. We've been adopted as sons and daughters. And so it's now our responsibility to act as God's new people, holy nation, as we've seen that he calls us to be, to relate to the outsider, those people who are alone, who are unprotected, the poor. Those people God puts in our path so that we might show his character to them. We might put Christ on display. Let's pray and ask the Lord to do that in our hearts. Lord, we're thankful that you have reconciled us to yourself through Christ. We're thankful that you have saved us once and for all at the cross. We're thankful you've given us your only son. You've made us your own. And so, Lord, this morning, we want to say thank you. We want to tell you that we love you. We pray that you would work in our hearts, Lord, to sanctify us. Lord, there's things in the text this morning that although maybe we came in not understanding them and maybe feeling a little bit weird about them, Lord, we pray that as we looked at them this morning that we have clarity. Lord, and there's, I'm sure, areas in each of these laws that you're pressing on our hearts, little things here and there. And so, Lord, we want to respond to you in obedience. Call us to be bold, to step outside of our own comfort so that we might put Christ on display in a way that we've maybe not done before. Give us opportunities to relate to the nations, Lord, especially as we're here in Berkeley with the opportunity to connect with so many people of different backgrounds and cultures. Lord, we want to be submitted to you. Thank you for rescuing us, for adopting us, into your family. We love you. Amen.